0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, open it again to the Psalms. The Psalms are easy to find. Take your Bible, find about the middle, and open it. If you land in Proverbs, like I just did, turn to the left a few pages. Uh, If you landed in Job, turn to the right a few pages. We're in the Psalms, Psalm 147, as we continue in this series through the last five Psalms of the Psalter. The Psalter is... Uh, Not S-A-L-T-E-R, not the thing you use to shake salt on your food at home. But the Psalter, P-S-A-L-T-E-R, is just a way of speaking about the whole book of the Psalms. The last five psalms of the Psalter, 146 through 150, are known as the Hallelujah Psalms because all of them begin and end with the same line. In our English Bibles, most of our translations will probably have it there as praise the Lord, Lord in all caps, referring to the proper name of God, his personal name, Yahweh. But it is that that phrase, praise the Lord, is that one Hebrew word, that one collective command in Hebrew, Hallelujah, all y'all praise Yahweh. Today in Psalm 147, we get to look at many more attributes that God is to be praised for. And um, man, I'm just excited to be in Psalm 147 today. I have enjoyed studying the Psalm, reading the Psalm, thinking about how to preach it this morning. I'm just excited. So I, I, I hope my excitement shows and I hope that you find yourself getting excited about Psalm 147 as we work our way through it as well. One of my favorite, amen, yeah, you can- listen, you don't have to be quiet when I'm preaching. If the Lord moves you, if you agree with something that is said and you want to say amen, say amen. If the Lord moves you to pray for me because I'm hurting, say Jesus help him. I mean, what? it's okay to talk back to me. One of my favorite movies. Of all time, a movie that I can watch over and over and over again. And I'm not the kind of guy that can watch movies over and over again. I read them. uh, uh, You don't read a movie. I'll watch it once, set it aside, and usually not return to it. But one movie I can return to time and again is The Princess Bride. It's a movie that has everything. I've talked about it before. Uh, It's it's got uh, action, adventure, romance, comedy. Uh, There's thrilling uh, events. uh, Some some even a few mildly scary portions. Uh, all of the characters are are, are particularly complex in their own different ways. And they're just entertaining to to watch. And and there are points of connection with many of them. But one of the most interesting characters... In The Princess Bride is the giant Fezzik, played by Andre the Giant, you know, the old professional wrestler who stands over, stood over seven feet tall, weighed something like four or five hundred pounds. Uh, he plays the role of Fezzik well. Fezzik is a, is a giant of a man, and there's almost nothing that Fezzik can't do. He's just incredibly strong. He's obviously imposing in his presence. Uh, but one thing about Fezzik is he's not quite the terrible giant that he appears when, when you look at him and you get to know him and you re, either you read, read about his character in The Princess Bride or you see him on the screen played by Andre the Giant in the film, what you find is that Fezzik, this massive mountain of a man, is actually incredibly gentle and kind and tender-hearted toward those who are hurting He's a man who can pick up and hurl boulders across fields and yet who also stoops to uh, lift and carry princesses out of danger and that sort of thing. Fezzik is an impressive character because he has all of the strength and imposing uh, uh, just way that he carries himself and yet he's incredibly tender and gentle and funny and kind. Fezzik, I think, is a, a limited and not very good but a helpful picture of kind of what God is like. When we think about God and his sovereignty and his omnipotence and his power and his omnipresence, when we think about all that God is and his holiness and his justice and his absolute perfection, we can start to, to see God as this imposing figure. And you know what? He is. When we think about God and all that he is and all that we aren't, we, we, and we put ourselves in, this, in the right sort of position in front of him, we see him for the massive giant of a being that he is. It can be terrifying. Until we get to know him and we draw near to him, until we, we hear from him and listen to what he's saying, we find that this God who is great and mighty and powerful and sovereign and creator of all things, able to do anything that is in his will to do is also tender and compassionate to small, tiny, insignificant, hurting human beings like me and you. Amen. Psalm 147 paints this beautiful picture of God, not as a gentle giant, but something far greater, as a gracious and compassionate, sovereign God. In Psalm 147, the psalmist calls God's people to worship the Lord because in his power and his wisdom and his strength, he has set his love on his people and he has tended to them. The main idea of Psalm 147, if I could just distill it into one line, would be this. Hallelujah. All y'all praise the Lord because the sovereign Lord loves his people. The sovereign Lord loves his people. As we embrace this truth from Psalm 147, I hope that we would come to, as a church, as Christians, followers of Jesus, that we would come to love singing songs of praise to God because he has concerned himself with us. The reality that God has seen us and is concerned about us and concerned for us and that he stoops to serve us, ought to bring us to sing with joy to him. I invite you to stand as you're comfortably able as we read Psalm 147. Read it out of your own Bibles. You can follow along in the screen uh, behind me if that's helpful to you. I encourage you, though, keep your Bibles open so you can make notes uh, in it or circle phrases that stand out to you as we work through it. Listen to the word of the Lord. The psalmist, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding... In those who hope in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and his rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. Are you excited yet? Man. Hallelujah. The sovereign Lord loves his people. The psalmist takes three different stanzas, collections of lines, if you will, to tell us specifically the way that God loves his people. And first in verses one through six, he says, hallelujah, praise the Lord, because God loves the wounded and the brokenhearted." The sovereign God of the universe takes time, takes attention to love, to care for the wounded and the brokenhearted. As we said before, verse 1 opens with that call to collective worship. Hallelujah, all y'all praise the Lord. And it's the last line of the psalm as well. It's good to maybe underline or circle those two phrases just to remind you that this song is a song that is bracketed, it's bookended with praise to God. Continuing in verse 1, the psalmist says, I hope you caught it. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant to sing praises to our God. And a song of praise is fitting. Christian, is this true for you? Do you you believe, as God's word says it is that it is good to sing praises? Now, I'm inclined to believe that by hearing your voices this morning as we are singing, that you do believe this, that it is good to sing praise to the Lord. And and I've been praying this week that, that the Lord would lead us as a church, especially this week, to sing well, knowing that it is good to sing praises to God. And I think he has been faithful to do that. I don't know of a single culture in all of history that doesn't have music as a major part of its composition, as a a major part of its uh, characterization. If you know of a culture that does not have music, let me know about it because that would be news to me. In many ways, music is the the songs that we sing and and write and come up with and either sing around campfires or record and play on a radio or on our smartphones. Music is in many ways the, the sort of expressive explanation of a culture. We explain through songs the things that are most important to us. You can tell a lot about what a culture values, what a culture believes by the songs that they sing. We tell a lot about what our world, what what the world that we live in right now thinks by the songs that are playing on on, uh, pop radio stations. But this has been true of almost every culture that I'm aware of. The things that are most important to us are the things that cause us to sing. And so certainly among the people of God, God's praises ought to be the things that we sing. The goodness of God, the praiseworthiness of God, His sovereignty, His power, His grace, His mercy, all that God is and all who He is ought to fill our songs and be the content of what we sing. Yet in church so often, I don't know why, but sometimes we just struggle to sing. Dudes, us especially... I don't know what it is. I don't know why men struggle to sing in church sometimes. I love singing. I can't carry a tune in the bucket. And Pastor Danny, I'm sorry that you are within such close proximity to me this morning because I probably sound like a flock of seagulls and not the 80s rock band, but a literal flock of seagulls this morning as I'm squawking my praises to the Lord. But listen, singing is good. It is right. It is fitting, the psalmist says. It's like a key that slides into the lock that it was made for. That's what it is for a Christian to sing. We're made for it. We're designed for it. We're called to sing without any qualifications for whether everyone should be able to sing in tune or not. The psalmist does not say, It is good to sing praises to our God so long as you keep it in the right tune. And don't ever fall flat or go sharp. No, he just says, y'all sing, because it's good, it's right. And by the way, I've never heard a crowd singing that was all flat or all sharp. If you're singing loud with a crowd of people, your voice is going to melt into theirs, and you're all going to sound awesome. So church, when the church sings, sing praises to God, because it's good, and it's right, it's fitting, it's what we're made to do. There's a whole sermon in there, but I'll move on to verse 2. Verse 2 gives us, I think, the context of this psalm and, and, and it helps us to put our, our minds into or to, to try to step into the shoes, if you will, of those who would have first heard this song or sung it among God's people, his Old Testament people, Israel. The context of this psalm, I believe, is for returning exiles, those people of Israel who had been taken out of the land of Judah into exile by the Babylonians in and about the year 586 or so BC. Now, they had been taken into exile by this other nation God had used this other nation to judge his people in Israel because the Israelites had had in, uh, incorporated pagan worship into their life as a people such to the point that God said I'm not going to allow you to carry my name falsely or in an empty way in the world and so I'm going to send you out of the land that I promised to bring you to in the first place so that you can learn to worship me only and for 70 years the people of Israel lived in captivity lived as exiles as strangers in a strange land In Babylon, a place that was not their home. And after about 70 years, God and his providence brought the Persian Empire to overtake the Babylonians. And Darius the king sent out an edict in about 536 or so BC, allowing um, those people who had been taken captive by the Babylonians to return back to their homes. And so Psalm uh, Psalm 147 is a song of praise to God by outcasts, uh, exiles from Israel who are now returning back home. This is a song that people who have been away from their homeland for a long, long time are meant to sing. This is a a song that people who maybe never knew the homeland that they came because they were born in exile and grew up in exile. This is a song that they are meant to sing. Songs of praise to God who brings his people back to their land. And not just for those who are returning for the first time, but for those in generation after generation after generation who are remembering the faithfulness of God to bring his people back to their land. This is a song for them. That God cares about those that he has once set his judgment on and now is bringing them back to their home. Verses 3 and 6 of Psalm 147, they they kind of bracket verses 4 and 5, but look at verses 3 and 6. We have in these verses a, a, a focus on God's attention to the brokenhearted. He heals the brokenhearted. He binds up their wounds. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Again, consider the context of those, those people returning from exile. People who had been brokenhearted because they'd been exiled from their homeland for seven decades. People who were wounded by, uh, either by the process of being taken into exile or just feeling the wounds, of, of uh, feeling the pain of living in a land not your own. This God, the God of the universe, cares for people like that. Verses 4 and 5 take us a slightly different direction. Verses 3 and 6 focus on the attention of God to the brokenhearted, but verses 4 and 5 focus on the sovereignty of God, the the all-inclusive power of God. The God who cares for the wounded, we learn, is the same God who is abundant in power and wisdom and who knows the name of every star. Listen again, he determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord, abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. I did a little bit of research this week, just on the internet, so take it for what that is. But astronomers from NASA estimate that there are anywhere between 100 billion and 400 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy in which our solar system resides. I can't even fathom those numbers, 100 billion or 400 billion. And and astronomers also estimate that there are perhaps as many as 2 trillion galaxies, like the Milky Way, some larger, some smaller, some about the same size, 2 trillion galaxies in the observable universe, which means there are parts of our universe we can't observe with deep field telescopes. And each of these galaxies have their own inestimable number of stars, much like the Milky Way. And so astronomers giving their best guess say that there may be up to one septillion, that is one with 24 zeros following it, stars in the universe. The psalmist says, the Lord knows all their names. Y'all, I got four kids and I can't even call the right one by the right name. And the Lord knows, the Lord who flings galaxies into existence, knows and has named every single one of the billions of stars therein. That God who has all of that knowledge in his mind tends to the wounded and the brokenhearted. But it gets better. Because not only does God who creates the universe, fling stars into existence, knows all their names, not care for the wounded and broken heart and bring them out of exile, but he goes further, not to just bring his people to a homeland, but to bring his people, to bring people into relationship with him. That same God who flings galaxies into existence, adds humanity to his divinity, takes on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, the son of God living among us, the maker of the universe, Becoming human in order to serve humanity by giving his life as a sacrifice for our sins that he might bring us to God. Listen, God who flings universes into existence does not love us because we are lovely, He loves us because He is determined to love us. The sovereign God of the universe, who knows the name of every star, does not love you because you are particularly pretty or because you are particularly lovable but merely because he has determined to love you. We adopted our dog Barney about four years ago or so. And when we were looking for a dog at the various shelters here in town, um, we were not looking for ugly dogs. (laughs) We weren't. And listen, there's plenty of them. And there are some people that God has gifted with just a soft heart for ugly dogs to adopt them into our home. I'm not one of them. When we saw Barney... Sitting in his kennel, we thought, that's a lovable dog. He's a big boy, big dopey head, floppy ears, beautiful kind of blondish fawn color. Came out of the cage or out of his kennel. We played with him a little bit. He's just sweet and kind. Nothing about this dog is unlovable unless you don't like, you know, 110 pound dogs. But we didn't adopt Barney because we had determined to love an unlovely dog. We adopted Barney because he's particularly lovable and he, and he ingratiated himself toward us. God does not love us like I adopt dogs. God walks into, this is a really bad analogy, I, and, and you know it's bad because it's not in my notes. God looks upon us like all the dirty scoundrel, stray dogs that get wrapped up by the you know the dog catchers, just like please someone, anyone take these things. In our sin, that's what we look like. We are those cross-eyed, jagged-tooth Chihuahua mutt type <laughs> mixes that nobody wants. God does not love us because we are lovely. Our sin makes us in in, in, in uh, Our sin makes us in, in, almost impassibly unlovable. And yet God, who flings stars into the universe, who has no fault in him whatsoever, has determined to love us. Amen. He is determined to love us. And he has demonstrated his love to us by sending his son Jesus to die for our sins. And not that we might remain unlovely, but that we might, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, become lovely. Because Christ is lovely. Hallelujah. The sovereign God of the universe loves the wounded and the brokenhearted. So, church, sing for the truth that Christ has loved and served you. Sing out of joy for the knowledge that Jesus, the Son of God, takes on flesh to love the unlovable by giving his life for sins and raising his life from the dead to give hope of salvation and eternal life with God, abundant life today, eternal life forever for those who were once unlovely. Sing for joy, because of that truth. There's a song we sing regularly, a song by uh, uh, the Hillsong Music Group. The title of the song is Who You Say I Am. But the first line of that song really I, I, it just catches my attention. I was thinking about it this week as I was thinking about this song. The first two lines of that song, Who You Say I Am, are this, Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? I was lost, but you brought me in. Oh, his love for me. The first two lines of that song recognize, I am nothing and no one that God should love me, but he does. And oh, how lovely and praiseworthy is he because of that. That God has not loved us in Christ because we were lovely, because we were lovable, but because the glory of mercy and, the, and grace of God are best shown when he serves the, the, the unlovely, unlovely, and when he loves the unlovable. Praise God. He cares for meager creatures like us. But the psalmist goes on. If you aren't excited yet, get ready. Verses 7 through 11, the psalmist encourages the people of Israel. These these who are returning from exile to sing to the Lord. First of all, praise the Lord. Now, verse 7, sing to the Lord. Why? Because he delights in those who hope in him. In verse 7, the call to sing is repeated. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. The people are commanded. And this time, we add instruments to it. Make melody to our God on the lyre. A lyre is like a small, maybe handheld or lap held, uh, like harp. Um, uh, a precursor to a, a modern harp and, and other stringed instruments as well. David, the king of Israel, uh, shepherd king, also would often play on the lyre. He was a skilled instrum- uh, instrumentalist. That's the word. I was going to say instrumentarian. That's not a word. <laughs> instrumentalist. Play or sing praises to God and add to it music for musical instruments. In verses 8 and 9, the psalmist now highlights more of God's sovereign character. His power, his wisdom are highlighted in verses 4 and 5. But here in verses 8 and 9, the psalmist draws attention to the creative power of God and the sustaining power of God. Look, he says, the Lord covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. This sovereign God that the people are praising, the one who brought them out of exile, is the one that causes rain to fall on the land and grass to grow, who feeds the beasts of the field on that grass, who cares for the crying raven. The psalmist takes us from the power of God and the expanse of the heavens in the first stanza of Psalm 147. Now to the care of God for the animals of the earth here in the second stanza of Psalm 147. Here you may think in these uh, uh, verses uh, about God sending rain to cause grass to grow and caring for the beasts and so on. Of maybe of Genesis chapter 2 and the parade of animals that the Lord brought before Adam and all of their diversity Or maybe you think of the catalog of of God's creative work and his power in the last chapters of Job as as God reminds Job of all that he has done in creating the universe. What is clear is that we are reminded that God is creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. God's creator and sustainer of the stars in the universe, and he's creator and sustainer of the beasts of the field and the grass that grows to feed them. The psalmist says, know this, that God is not just God of the heavens. He's not just God who's far away, but he's also God who's, who's closer. He's, he's here on earth caring for the processes and sustaining the processes here on earth. In verses 10 and 11, we find that yet for all of God's power and creativity, for all of his care for creation, that it isn't the things of creation, It's not the strength of horses or any other majestic animal, nor is it the prowess and military might of human beings that impresses God. God, who causes rain to fall and grass to grow and beasts to be fed by it, is not impressed by behemoth or Leviathan. He's not impressed by the buffalo of the field or the whale of the ocean. And neither is he impressed in guys that can lift heavy stuff. His pleasure is not in the strength. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of the man. What does God delight in? Consider a moment how we are impressed with powerful beasts. Some of you work with horses. Some of you ride horses. Some of you uh, may just enjoy observing large animals at the zoo. That's the kind of people that we are. Keep the big ones far away from me. Don't get them too close. I'll enjoy them from afar. Some of us are impressed, maybe not with powerful beasts, but we're impressed with powerful humans. Warriors of old, American gladiators, ninja warriors, Navy SEALs, right? These men, these humans of great strength and great prowess and great ability are captivating to us. These animals that are powerful and majestic uh, uh, enrapture our attention. But God is unimpressed by these things. Isn't that amazing? God who creates these majestic animals, God who, who makes even men and women to grow in physical strength, to be able to do lots of stuff, not impressive to the Lord whatsoever. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, when the Lord is leading Samuel the prophet toward David to anoint him as the new king. 1 Samuel goes to one of David's older brothers to anoint him as king, because he's the oldest brother. Surely he must be the one that the Lord wants to be the king. 1 Samuel 16:7, The Lord said to Samuel, Regarding David's older brother, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. Man is impressed by the strength of the horse, by the the power of a man's legs. But the Lord looks on the heart. And verse 11 of Psalm 147 tells us precisely that all over again. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor is his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure. The Lord delights in those who fear him. And those who hope in his steadfast love. Those who hope in his steadfast love. That's what the Lord delights in. Now, the Hebrew word for steadfast love is one of our favorite Hebrew words. You already know it. It's that Hebrew word, chesed. If you're not hacking up a little bit, you're not saying it quite right. Don't practice now. This word, chesed, means something like steadfast love or compassion, faithful love. Covenant loyalty, loving kindness, grace, mercy. It's even translated as all of these different things in different places all throughout the Old Testament. It's like all of that word, hesed, is like all of those things all wrapped up together. It is a notoriously difficult Hebrew word to translate into English because that one small word, hesed, communicates so many deep concepts about God and his character all at once. What is sure in these verses, particularly verse 11, is that while the Lord has many objects in creation that human beings might consider noteworthy and pleasing and fun to look at and impressive, that the Lord is favorably disposed with benevolence and acceptance toward those who wait expectantly for the expression of his grace and kindness. God loves those who hope in him. Just as God delights in those who hope in his steadfast love, who hope in his very nature and his character of being gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, so also is Jesus, his son, the very incarnation and revelation in human flesh of God's love. Do you want to know what chesed looks like? You look to Jesus. Do you want to know what it is to hope in God and to hope in his steadfast love? You place your hope in Jesus because he is the full expression of God's chesed. All this stuff wrapped up in him. John the Apostle writes in his first letter to the church, 1 John chapter 4 verses 9 and 10, he writes these words. Listen, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, the atonement for our sins. Friends, to hope in the chesed of God, the steadfast love of the Lord, is to place our confident expectation of God's covenant grace in the person of Jesus Whose great act of love was to give his life as atonement for sins. The Lord delights in those, his pleasures in those who fear him, who worship him, and in those who hope in his son, Jesus. Christian, do you ever wonder if, if the Lord is pleased with you? Do you ever think sometimes in the middle of maybe your worst day, your worst sin, how could God be pleased with me? Man, that's like the story of my life, week to week. How could God love me? How could God be delighted in me? God, I wouldn't blame you if you just turned your back and walked out on me right now. But he, in his Word, says, no, I delight in the one who hopes in my son. Amen. With every time that we sin and turn in repentance, we turn from our sin to trust in Jesus, to hope in Christ afresh and anew all over again, renewing our commitment to him. The Lord is delighted in us. It is, it's strange. I don't know why. Maybe it's this, maybe it's a Protestant kind of thing, but... We, we want to feel like we are doing something to be pleasing to God. Like I'm doing enough work in the church in the community. I'm I'm generous enough. I my attendance records are so that the Lord is pleased with me. I'm keeping Him happy with me. Friends, God is not impressed with your church attendance. He wants you to be with the body, but He's not impressed by it. God is not impressed with your financial giving though he calls you to do it as an act of worship and and as a demonstration of your continued dependence upon him. God is not impressed with the good and the nice, the generous things you do for other people, although in Christ he has called us to do that. What is the Lord impressed with? What does he delight in? How do you please him? By hoping in him, by trusting him, by, by falling on his grace and saying, there's nowhere else for me to go. The foot of the cross is home base for me. Jesus is my king. He's the shepherd. He's the one that I'm following. That's what what delights the Lord's heart. Christian, no. You are a delight to the Lord if your hope is in Jesus. Now, if your hope is in anything else, friends, God is not impressed with you. But if your hope is in Jesus, he delights in you. He sings over you. He is glad and pleased to have you, to redeem you from your sin and make you part of his family. He is delighted in those who hope in his son. So Christian... Sing for joy. Sing for joy, knowing that God is pleased with your hope in Christ. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote a, psalm, song, or wrote a song called, or a hymn called, Psalm 147. We've never sung it. I don't even know how the tune goes because I can't read music, but these are the words. Isaac Watts writes, what is, the great, what, what is the creature's skill or force? The sprightly man, the warlike horse, the nimble wit, the active limb, All are too mean delights for him, but saints are lovely in his sight. He views his children with delight. He sees their hope. He knows their fear and looks and loves his image there. If the words of Isaac Watts don't move you, hear the words of the great British preacher, Charles Spurgeon, as he preached, the words he preached uh, when he preached Psalm 147, verse 11. He said to those listening, Dear heart, do you fear to come before God because of your sin? Do you tremblingly stretch out your finger to touch the hem of your Savior's garment that you might be made whole? Is your faith feeble? Do you trust his word but weakly? He will not therefore spurn you, but will receive you. For as he healed the woman who came behind him in the crowd and bade her to go in peace, so will he do with you. The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear him and those that hope in his mercy. Spurgeon says, if they never get beyond that point for the present, they shall get into a higher stage by and by, but even now the Lord takes pleasure in them. Christian, do you follow Jesus but falteringly? Know that the Lord is still pleased to receive you as you trust in Christ. Sing to the Lord, knowing that God is pleased with your hope in his Son, the fullest expression of his steadfast love. This psalm still goes on further and I, I could preach 42 sermons from this one. So. It's the last point, the last stanza, verses 12 through 20. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. The Lord loves the wounded and brokenhearted. Sing to the Lord. His delight is in those who fear Him. Verse 12. Praise the Lord, the psalmist says, because He speaks to His people. He speaks to His people. This final stanza reminds us again of the context of this psalm. As one that's sung by the voices of those who sing from the, the confines of the environment of their rebuilt city. Exiles returning back to the land of Judah, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, rebuilding the temple there with uh, 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 bars set in the gates again and borders that now uh, give them peace and new found prosperity and care from God in their rebuilt city. I think here of those that have had their homes or businesses destroyed by recent fires in New Mexico this year. And the joy with which they will sing and speak when they return to rebuilt homes and livelihoods in due time. So also was the joy of the Israelites as they returned to Jerusalem. And as it was rebuilt, seeing all of the providence and continued care of God, not just to bring them back to their land, but to allow them to rebuild their city. Verses 12 through 15 point to the provision of God for the people that he has brought back from Babylon. And into Jerusalem again. But it it brings more attention to his word, which goes out into the world to accomplish his will. Do not be tempted to think that the Israelites, as they returned, credited their release from Persia to anyone but God. Darius was the king that signed the order. But God was the one who put it into the mind of Darius the king to do his will. God's word works in the hearts of kings to do his will. And the people of Israel realized it. Praise God. He's put it into the heart of this pagan king to let us come home. In verses 16 through 18, we have this singing about God sending snow and frost and hail by his word. God's word works to bring his people back from exile, but his word also works in nature to bring about snow and ice in wintertime that challenge the hardiest of adventures. Who can stand before his cold? And then, in nearly the same breath, the same God brings about the spring sun that melts the frost and brings rivers of life to water crops and herds, all by his word. God's word is powerful, the psalmist says. But more so, more more powerful even just commanding kings and commanding creation, God by his word reveals himself to his people. Verses 19 and 20, he declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He's not dealt this way with any other nation. They do not know his rules. The word of God is never relegated only to his revelation in nature. What we can know from God by observing nature is that he exists and that he is powerful. And that's all we can know about him. If we're to know God's character, if we're to know how he relates to us, he must speak to us and tell us these things and praise him he has. God's word is not just general. He does not just fling the heavens into existence and the earth into its place and say, know all you can about me. Good luck, folks. No, he speaks to his people through his written word. He speaks his statutes and his rules to Israel, the psalmist says. That's a way of saying these words are God's words to us. God speaks through his word in a way that says this is who I am. Know me and be known by me. Don't just know a couple of things about me. Know my character. Know my personality. Know who I am and what I do and why I do it. The God who speaks and sets captives free from exile, who by his command causes snow and ice to cover the earth and to melt into springs of water in the springtime is above all the God who reveals himself with clarity of human language so that his creatures might know him and love him and enjoy him and God is to be praised for this the psalmist says hallelujah praise the lord why because he speaks because he has spoken because he has revealed himself to us the psalmist says the lord has not dealt this way he's not dealt thus with any other nation just to say that the lord reveals himself exclusively in the old testament to israel But that Israel, as his covenant people, are those who have been entrusted with his special revelation so that they might make his glory known among the nations. Psalm 96 verse 3 speaks about making the glory of the Lord known among the peoples. How great is this God? The psalmist invites us to consider who by his word brings about natural disaster and provision and by the same word speaks to his people that they might know him. Praise the Lord. He speaks. We can know him. But God's word is not merely found in words written on a page, but in words that point to himself. John, the gospel writer, calls Jesus the word of God. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, speak about the way that God reveals himself uh, in former times through prophets and in the law, but now he's spoken to us by his Son, In Jesus, the Christ, God reveals His gracious condescension, His coming down to sinful humans. In Jesus, God reveals His grace that saves sinners from their sin and makes them right with Him. In Jesus, God reveals His deliverance from death to a homeland that is His presence. In Jesus is revealed the reality that the Israelites long waited for, That God gives those who love him more than political freedom. He gives them freedom from death and sin. And he brings them in Christ from a place of spiritual darkness to walk in holiness with Jesus as their light and the shepherd of their souls. And to be a light to those who are still in darkness. God speaks to us that we might know him and he speaks to us that we might speak his words to others that they might know him too. Recall the last words of Jesus to his disciples before he ascended. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28:18. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus does not save us so we can be happy in ourselves, by ourselves, with him. He saves us. Revealing, God revealing to us through his word who Jesus is that we might trust in him so that we might lead others to trust in him as well. So praise the Lord, church. Praise the Lord because he speaks grace and life to us in Jesus. He is worthy of our songs because he speaks grace and life to us in Jesus. Here again, because it's good to sing a song to the Lord, the words of Charles Wesley in the song, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. He wrote this in 1739. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread throughout the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. Jesus, the name that charms our fears, that bids our sorrows cease. Tis music in the sinner's ears. Tis life and health and peace. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. He speaks. And listening to his voice, new life the dead receive. The mournful broken hearts rejoice the humble poor believe. Glory to God and praise and love be ever, ever given. By saints below and saints above, the church and earth and heaven. Sing, church. God has spoken grace and life to us in Jesus. If you know him, if you know him, you can say with all the confidence of the psalmist that it is good to sing praises to our God. Oh, my friends, who is there like our God? He who sits enthroned over heaven stoops to serve the broken. He who fashions majestic creatures loves the lowly who hope in him. He who speaks worlds into existence tells us in His Word and by the action of His Son that He has loved us so to save us from our sin. Do you know this God this way? Christian, do you know this God this way? Does your heart delight in Christ the Savior? Is there a song in your heart to sing to our sovereign and loving Redeemer? If you've been changed by the love of Christ, you know that it is good and fitting to sing praises to him here in our assembling and out among the nations. Hallelujah. The sovereign God, sovereign Lord loves his people and it is good to sing praises to him.